glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Mark chapter 10, beginning verse 17. Well-known text. We've looked at this text in a very recent history since the first of the year uh, concerning the rich young ruler, Mark 10, 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Most of us sitting here would say, well, if that's what you have to do to have eternal life, I'm out. Let's just be honest. How many of you, if Jesus said, just honor your father and your mother, you'd have to say, never struck on that one. Uh, if he said, don't steal, do not steal. How many of us in this room could say, I've never stolen anything in my life. I'm a Baptist preacher raised in a Christian home, and I wish I could say to you, I never stole something in my life, but I'd be lying to you. But most of us right here would say, I'm in trouble. But the man that he was speaking to was not. Or at least he didn't think so. Verse 20, and he answered and said unto him, Master, All these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. He was sad at that saying and went away. And what's the next word? Grieved, for he had great possessions. Jesus gave him the truth as every word the Lord Jesus gives is truth. And yet, it grieved him. I looked up the definition of the word grieved and in, in Scripture. It's the same word, by the way, here in, in both texts. It's the same underlying Greek word. The English definition means, I'm going to give you a number of definitions here, and you can see where these verses, these the, the word it fits in the contextual definition. But it uh, means to give pain to, of mind to someone to afflict or to wound the feelings. As for instance, nothing grieves a parent like a wayward child. Uh, to uh, afflict, to inflict pain on, to make sorrowful or to excite regret in someone. To offend, to displease or to provoke as when we grieve the Holy Spirit. It can mean also to feel pain of mind or heart, to be in pain on account of evil, to sorrow or to mourn, We grieve at the loss of friends or property. We grieve at the misfortunes of others, so on and so forth. And so you get the idea that grief is pain or affliction of mind. Uh, When someone is grieved by another, that person is the the source of grief. And I know in preaching, I, I seek to touch on this issue a lot, but I think when you begin to get general misconceptions in so-called Christian culture that get they get steam, if you would, or as the Bible calls them, they're winds of doctrine. And there is a general misconception. Brian in Sunday school dealt with six misconceptions about the will of God there uh, in Sunday school. It's needful to do that because there are things that people believe, and you say, why do you believe that? Well, because that's just the way it is, and it doesn't line up with what the Bible says. So when we're dealing with the Word of God and how it affects us, many feel... I know the Spirit of God moved today because I just felt so good. I came from the southeast and many times the gauge of a successful church service or that God had moved is it just really made people feel either excited about serving God or made them feel warm inside or maybe just made them feel a sense of, of love. And listen, God's Word can do that. It does do that. Especially if you're doing what's right. But may I say equally throughout Scripture, you'll find that God's Word often gives grief. May I say this? I believe before it can give joy, it has to give grief. I really do believe that, whether you're talking about for salvation or if you're talking about the sanctification of your life. 
Because here's what the, here's the truth. Isaiah 55 says that we our thoughts are not as his thoughts, and our ways are not as his ways. Uh, Brian dealt with in Sunday school. It is not in man to direct his way. So if it's not in us, then when God speaks, often what He says is foreign to our thinking. It conflicts with the way we naturally think. I believe revival takes place when we abandon what we think to accept what He says. When we say, I feel, I think, this is my perception, and God's Word calls that into challenge, and we say, you know what? If God said that, that's right. So the first man we come to, the Bible says, he went away grieved. His response to the Word of God, when it grieved him, was he left it. The Bible word for that would be called being offended. Jesus offended him. I began to say a moment ago, we have to deal with some misconceptions. Many would have the idea the Lord Jesus would never offend anybody. Meaning His words would never cause you to feel pain or affliction of heart and mind. And nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, some of the most painful moments of my life have been under the preaching of God's Word. Now, it wasn't because there's anything wrong with God's Word. Or something wrong with me. And so, let's move forward now to John chapter 21. This is the better of these two stories because of how it turns out. But as the Word of God goes, God gives us truth. He's not going to give us only the account of Peter, who when he was grieved, followed. He's going to give us both so that we can learn uh, from the truth. John chapter 21, beginning verse 1. We need to go ahead and read 23 verses, because that will put everything in its context. Verse 1 of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread, and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples, after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, let me just stop for a moment. How many of you enjoy getting singled out? Isn't that fun? Isn't it fun when you get singled out? Now, as preachers, because we are just men, we have to be very careful to not use the responsibility we've been given to preach to, from a fleshly manner, single people out. But Jesus Christ has the ability and the authority to single out whoever he chooses. And may I say this, he knows how to do it. And there was a reason. You know, none of the other disciples had denied that they knew the Lord, but Peter had. And so the Lord is working not to destroy Peter, but to restore him. And he singles him out, he says, uh, in verse uh, 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said to him, Lord, thou knowest all things. 
Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Did he, Jesus not tell both men the same thing? Both men, he said, take up the cross and follow me. That's what he's saying. Peter gets more details. Verse 20, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, saying which, uh, uh, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Now, we don't have time to read the rest of the Bible, but if you did, you'd find out that Peter followed the Lord. I was in my reading this morning, I read Acts chapter 1, and in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has ascended back to heaven, and Peter is busy feeding the sheep. He stands up and said, the Scripture says, somebody's got to fill the office of Judas, so in order to obey the Scripture, let's do what we're supposed to do. You can say what you want, whether that was a good, a good idea or not. I'll say this about Peter. He was seeking to follow the Word of God. And that's what he did until the Lord called him home, knowing that it would cost him his life. Yet, even though God grieved him with his word, Peter followed. What a, what a stark contrast. And by the way, as far as I can tell, in the New Testament Scripture, it's the only time that you have the, both of these instances where Jesus directly says something directly to someone, and the Bible says it grieved them. I believe the Holy Spirit constructed the Bible the way it is on purpose. So that we can do what we're doing this morning. Say, let's compare those two stories. They are, there's many similarities in them. Many similarities. Uh, recently, back at the first of the year, we preached on a series of messages on one thing. And of course, the, uh, the, the ruler lacked one thing. He had a lot of things in his life that if we looked at him, we would say he was a saved man. But he lacked one thing, and that was the Savior. <laughs> He only lacked one thing. He had good morals. He had money. He had, uh, he had good skills of managing his life, but he did not have the Savior. He had religion. He had notoriety. He had all those things. And so, but I'll say this. The only reason he didn't have the Savior is the Savior's words offended him. He could have had the Savior. So what I want to do, as I said, for our message sake, I want to compare both of these men give you three points about them in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with their encounter with the Master. That's our first point, if you're keeping notes. Their encounter with the Master. Both men had the same opportunity. Both men had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Any preacher can tell you uh, that when you preach a message, you'll get a variety of responses. Some people couldn't tell you what you preached. So well, it's, you should hold them captive, and well, fine. But some people say, "What did the pastor just preach?" Uh, by the way, don't ask me tomorrow what I preached today. It'll take me ten minutes to remember, right? But the fact is, many times somebody sat through an entire message. God spoke. Somebody over here was hanging on every word, hearing the word of God in every line because they're hungry. Somebody over here got mad. We have all kinds of responses. Jesus said in the parable of the sower to his disciples, Take heed how ye hear. Take heed how ye hear. We've just come out of a Bible conference as a church. We just heard a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching on what the church is. We were charged as a church on Thursday night to hold the line and fulfill our responsibilities. That lines out to some personal decisions. The church is made up of individuals. And so, as we heard the preaching, I have no doubt that when God, God's Word is preached, when God's Word is read, when God's Word is taught, God the Holy Spirit uses that to say things very personally to us. So here they are. There's 11 men around a fire on a seashore. And the Lord Jesus is speaking. But as He's speaking, it's very personal with Peter, someone of great influence. And I guess I would say this coming into this Sunday. I am confident that through the preaching of God's Word, the Holy Spirit has given some directives to many people in this room as to what we are to do and what His will is. We had a great lesson this morning on the will of God in Sunday school. And uh, the, the uh, Saul, who would become Paul, was given some very clear direction on decisions he needed to make. You know what? He didn't leave the road to Damascus, Saul, by the way, and go immediately start uh, preaching in Asia Minor. He left there and went to Damascus to a street called Straight. The will of God is the next decision. 
It's the next decision. And I'm just confident this morning that God has been speaking to us. By the way, when God is speaking to us, especially if you're a saved person, you know it's God. There's a difference in an idea or a worry or a fear and instruction from God's Holy Spirit. It's possible that some here this morning have been sitting through the preaching of God's Word, maybe not just last week, but over a number of weeks, and God is telling you what He was telling the rich young ruler. And how things turn out between us and God is determined by one simple thing, how we respond to His Word. He will speak, then we must respond. Some say, well, my response is to not respond. That is a response. When God speaks, we respond. I, I, I don't want to be unkind. I'll be very careful how I use this illustration. But this morning, I had one of my little ones, and I spoke to him. And his response, I wanted a response back, like, yes, sir, or uh, something like that. The response was, can I get a witness? <laughs> I got a response. And? That he got a response. <laughs> we responded to each other. The point would be this. There might be someone looking and say, why did that upset you? He, didn't, he did nothing. But I gave an instruction. And his doing nothing was a response. Now, for those of you who are members, let me just speak with, with, from my heart to you. If God has spoken to us in recent days and we know his will, we are responding. Right now, we're responding. If God is showing us some things, may I say this? I'm aware, though, that what He's saying to us may grieve us. It may grieve us. I remember, Brian, at the 10th anniversary, you came and you preached, and uh, what a joyful time that God had allowed us to reach 10 years, and the church was at some uh, some waypoints in the road. I think we've just passed another waypoint. Uh, your admonition to us was, don't settle in. Don't get lethargic. Don't get into mediocrity. Those may not have been your words, but don't simply so rejoice in this moment that you stop moving forward in the will of God. Can I say for five years, the number one thing that as your pastor, I pray that God give us victory over in this church is lethargy. That we would not say, well, God's done some good things with us. Let's just coast. That's what I'm having to pray about in my life. Me that I'm not just going to coast, but I would follow in the will of God. Again, there's a lot of messages that could be preached from both of these texts. I want us to stay focused this morning that what I want us to hear is how we respond to God's Word. One text is dealing with salvation. That's Mark chapter 10. The other text is dealing with service. And that's not really, again, where I want our focus. Both texts are, though, dealing with how men respond to God's Word when it grieves them. And I'll just say this. I, I, in recent days, I'll, I'll get a little open and personal with you. This is rocket science. I had this thought, and I know it came from the Lord. Your flesh is still as corrupt as it was the day God saved you. Isn't that rocket science? You'll never get to the point where you can just let your flesh coast. It must be dealt with daily, or you'll sin. And that reminder is to all of us this morning that that we th- this this message is as active for anybody here as it is anybody else, that we must stay on guard, that we respond correctly when God speaks to us. May I say this? That's not really what it was. It's kind of like, don't forget this truth, Nevin. I would lie for the Lord to say, man, you have arrived. You are the best Christian, and you can just coast now. You've learned so many things that you can just kind of, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you will just by default do the right thing. May I say, you'll never get there, and I'll never get there. We must walk in the Spirit if we're not fulfilled the lust of the flesh. There are many times in my own Christian experience that what I have thought and where I thought I was at was not consistent with reality. And the Word of God had to bring me in the check. And so that may be where you're at this morning, whether it is that you have thought yourself a person, well, I'm a Christian, and maybe God's Word is showing you you're actually not. You may have thought, my sins are forgiven, or I'm okay. If I met God today, I think He's all right with me. But maybe God's been showing you, you've never been born again. You have never actually personally put your trust in Jesus Christ, believing that He's living enough to save you. And you need to be saved. 
May I say this, no one has a harder time with that than someone who for years has convinced themselves, I'm righteous enough without faith in Jesus Christ. Someone who has everyone convinced around them, I'm a righteous person. It's hard to admit I'm lost. I got news. It's hard for a child to admit that, let alone an adult. Because that says I can't save myself. And so that may be where you are this morning. You may have thought, you know, I think I, I'm doing fine as a Christian. How many have ever had this? Your idea was, I think I'm doing really well in my Christian life. And through a series of events, and some of the things Brian talked about in Sunday school, where God reveals His mind and His will, God began to show you a picture of yourself that was not even close to how you envisioned your own spiritual state. You thought, man, I, am, I could go slay Goliath right now. And what God is saying is, no, you're a little more like Peter warming himself over a fire. Well, that's a rude awakening, isn't it? In those moments, we have a decision to make. When God speaks, His word is truth, and we'll either get offended or we'll follow. Now, let's see these three things. Number one, their encounter with the Master. Uh, with both of them, both men come to the Lord Jesus Christ with haste. Do you notice that? We won't take time to read both texts again, but the rich young ruler comes running to Christ. The Lord Jesus is obviously in his area, in the general vicinity. And when he hears Jesus is nearby, many today would call him a seeker. He was seeking after something from God. He asks the right question. He does not ask, Lord, what must I do to get rich? He already was. Lord, what must I do to uh, be a, a person of respect in my community? No, he already had that. Lord, what must I do to be entrusted with authority? No, he already had that. He says, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, I'll be honest with you. I've told you this many times in preaching this text. You read this text. He calls Jesus good master. If I were a disciple standing by, I'd say, well, right, there's a fellow Christian. He knows Jesus is the master. He knows he's good. He must be saved. Jesus says, why, why are you calling me good? I say, why did he say that? Well, of course, because he's challenging what's wrong in this man's thinking. This man thought himself on par with Jesus Christ. He said, you're a good man. I'm a good man, but you're a better man than I am, so you tell me how I can be good like you. What can I do to be good enough to have eternal life? Good, Master. And Jesus said, why callest thou me good? There's none good but God. What he's saying to the man, as you well know, is either you think that I'm a man that's as good as God, or you think that I'm God who became man. Now, by the context, we know what the man thought. He thought what most false religions today teach, and that is that man can make himself as good as God. You do the right things, you jump through the right hoops, you, you, you live the right kind of life, and you'll be good enough to live forever. And so the Lord Jesus would go to work on him, showing him he was not who he thought he was. The man was not who he thought he was. And so the encounter with the master, though, the young ruler, he comes running to Jesus, kneels to him. Peter, when he finds out that it's Jesus on the seashore, what does he do? Gets his coat on, gets dressed, because he knew he ought to be in the first place. Gets his coat on, jumps in the water, swims to shore, and really does something miraculous. He pulls 153 ship that two ships are trying to drag. 153 fish. It pulls them to shore. I think both men are anxious to be near Christ. They're both listening and wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. So the, there's a similar response there. The first man, he initiates a conversation with the Lord when he says to the Master, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But I want you to see a contrast. That's not the way it happened with Jesus and Peter. When Peter comes to shore, so the young ruler, he initiates conversation with Christ because a good person would do so. When Peter comes to shore, Jesus says, Come and dine, and he invites Peter. May I say this? While I speak of salvation, salvation is not something you initiate. It's something God invites you to. Please don't miss what I just said. No man seeketh after God. Why? Because men are not good. If a man seeks God, it's because he wants something from God for himself. The rich young ruler initiated a conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ because he wanted, I believe, Jesus to validate, you're good enough already, son. When Jesus didn't tell him what he wanted to hear, he left. If you came to church this morning saying, well, I'm a God seeker, I, I just want to be good and I want to do right, there's none like that unless you've been born again. 
If they, if you and I have in us this morning a desire to do good, it's because God put it in us when we got saved. Prior to that, we weren't good. There's none good. No, not one. And so we find with these men in their, in their uh, encounter with the Savior, there's a similarity. They both with zeal come to the Savior, but there's a contrast. One of them is invited to, to dine and the other is initiating a conversation. And I'm not saying it's wrong to initiate a conversation, but I believe the contrast is worth noting. If we were watching, we would probably count the young ruler a, a, a better man than Peter. Peter didn't come saying... What must I do? He already knew what to do to have eternal life. Believe on Christ. Peter didn't come and say, Lord, let me fix you a dinner. Jesus said, let me serve you. Let me ask you something this morning. Which is easier, to serve or be served? I believe many times it's harder to be served than it is to serve. Because I have to humble myself and receive what I cannot offer. And I see a contrast between these two men. One man says, what can I offer you that will make me good enough to go to heaven? And Jesus says, let me offer you something. Now, I understand one's about salvation, the other's about service, but they were, these two men were in a very different relationship with God. One was at enmity with God. One had been pardoned for his sins. And the point would be this this morning. Before the Lord begins to speak, there is an encounter. They both had the same opportunity. They both had the same zeal. But as we'll say throughout the message, their outcome would be so different. Number two, their engagement with the Master. So we focused on their encounter. The Most of this message is in our final point this morning. Their engagement with the Master. I've already mentioned one is inquiring, what, what good things shall I do that I might have eternal life? You know what that makes you think? You know, what, you know what really throws us in this story? We think he was a good man. We call him the rich young ruler. We look at this young man who comes running to Christ and we think, man, only a good person would seek after God like that. How many of you have ever met somebody and they say, boy, I've read my Bible through three times and I pray all the time. You think, well, man, they got to be saved. Well, don't you count on it. Depends on how they're responding to the Word of God. You never got saved until you got lost. I've asked a man one day, I said, have you ever had a point in your life where you believed that if God sent you to hell, it would be a right thing for him to do? He said, I don't know about that. Can I ask you that question this morning? Have you ever believed that if God sent you to an eternal flame where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, that it was a right thing for him to do that? Have you ever seen yourself as deserving of God's wrath? You say, I don't believe that. You're not saved. That's what repentance is, friend. God says that the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. If Jesus had blatant, bluntly said what I just said to this man, you know what, young man? You're going to die and go to hell and you deserve it. What would that young man have said? Exactly what he did say. Because that's really what Jesus told him. In so many words, Jesus told that brilliant young man, you're an idolater. And that young man already knew where idolaters went. If God said to you this morning, you're a blasphemer. You're an idolater. You love false gods. Would we accept that? Now today, I'm a blood-bought child of God. But that's God's doing, not mine. You with me this morning? Jesus had a man approach him saying, what good thing. He was trying to be good. Trying to be good because he believed he was good. And so he is an inquiring soul. But on contrast to that, when you get to John 21 and Peter comes to shore, the emphasis is not on the inquiring soul but on the inquiring Savior. You see the contrast between these two stories? One, the focus is on the ruler, the young man seeking Jesus. What good thing. But when you get over to the seashore and Peter comes to shore, the Lord Jesus gives an invitation. Come and dine. And then who starts asking the questions? 
And part of the value of this message this morning is if you're saved, you'll remember when you got saved, you did not seek after God. God began to do things in your life to show you who you were, that you were a sinner, that you were condemned, that Jesus Christ had took your place. And some point in time, if you got saved, you became, uh, you became, what, what word should I use, enamored with the fact that God's Son would take what you deserved. That's salvation. Not that God's giving me what I deserve. The young ruler approaches Christ. May I say this? If your approach to God is, well, one day I'll be good and God will give me what I deserve, God's Word's going to offend you by and by. That I'll prove to God I'm a good one. I'll prove to God He should not be upset with me. I'll prove to God that He should welcome me into heaven by doing many good things. At some point in time, God's Word's going to upset you. Why? Because that's not true. We're not good, Romans 3.10 and Romans 3.12. And God will not change His Word to keep from grieving us. He will grieve us in order to save us. So He did with the rich young ruler. And so you find that in their engagement with Christ, you have in Mark 10 an inquiring soul, but in John 21 you have an inquiring Savior. He is taking His Word, and He was inquiring Mark 10 as well, but you find such a contrast between these two. Jeremiah 17 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, it's He who knows the heart. Uh, Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. May I say this morning, it is not good people seeking after God. It is a good Savior seeking after sinners. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so again, the, the encounter they had, similarities, they both rushed to Christ, but there's contrast. Uh, one is invited while the other is initiating a conversation. Their engagement, one is an inquiring soul, the other is being dealt with by the inquiring Savior. Uh, in both of them though, and here's our message this morning, there's not only an encounter, that's an equal opportunity, there's an engagement. I think they still had an equal opportunity. Then there's enlightenment from the Master. They can speak and say what they want, but it's when God speaks that the truth comes to light. I can have whatever idea or whatever thought I have about myself. May I say this? It is not hard to convince yourself you're good. Here's why. You go out there and find a bunch of bad people and you're better than them. In Luke chapter 18, there was a man that was convinced he was good and he came to that conclusion by comparing himself to others and by being fastidious in little bitty details and ignoring major things. But primarily he said, Lord, I thank thee that I am not as other men. You, you, you who try to win souls to Christ, you know as much as I do. How many times, if you, if you got paid $5 for every time somebody said, well, I've never killed anybody, you'd be a wealthy person, right? Because that's people's, that's their righteousness. Well, I may need, I mean, I'm not a good person. Are you a sinner? Yeah, but I never killed anybody. Then you meet somebody that's killed somebody? Well, I never killed like somebody else did. I've dealt with murderers who think they're righteous. How so? Because they were justified in what they did. That person had it coming. They were worse than me. It's amazing the deceitfulness of human nature. But when God speaks, all that gets peeled away. And that's why we get grieved at His Word. Because He confronts the way we think. He confronts our fantasies with reality. May I say this? I believe this with all my heart. People do not dismiss the Bible because they have a hard time believing it's true. They dismiss the Bible because of what's in it that they know is true. Mark Twain, an infidel, an unbeliever, said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things that I do. What a true statement. Now let's get this final point. Their enlightenment from the Master. In both accounts, revelation is given from the mouth of Jesus Christ. As Jesus begins to speak to the rich young ruler... Uh, it begins to reveal the true situation. His words show us the true situation. And so the man comes, he says, Good master, what things shall I, what, what good things shall I do that I may, uh, have eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, verse 18, Why callest thou me good? One question begins to reveal the error in this man's thinking. 
One question. Why callest thou me good? You help me this morning. Why would anybody call Jesus good? Duh, because he is. <laughs> right? But this man called him good because, as I said earlier, he felt he could elevate himself to the same plane. False religion says man can make himself as good as God. Man can become God. God's salvation says God became man that we might be saved. So one question, why callest thou me good? There's none good but God, and uh, but one, and that is God. Then he goes on, and what he does, he gives the man the law. Thou knowest the commandments. And he gives him a number of very clear, he doesn't give them all, but he gives some example commandments. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. You know as well as I do, according to Galatians chapter 3, that the law is a schoolmaster to do what? Bring us to Christ. What Jesus is working to do is to prove to this man, you're not good. And as I said at the introduction of the message, most of us would say, "Ah, what do I do? At which point Jesus says, I'm here to save you. Right? That's what he did with the woman at the well. He told her one simple commandment. Man, he peeled the, the layers off of her. He said, go call thy husband. She says, I have none. She lied. He proved her an adulteress and a liar with one commandment. He said, go call thy husband. She said, I have no husband. He said, in that thou says thou hast no husband. Thou saidst truly because you've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. You think she saw that one coming? But you know what the Bible says convinced her that he was the Christ? He hath told me all things that ever I did. He grieved that woman. He showed her what she really was. You're a fornicator. You're a liar. With one commandment, he proved to her she needed a Savior till she finally says he used the law on her. We know that Messiah cometh. She quoted from the book of Daniel. We know that Messiah cometh. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. And you know what she did? She took him. She got to the seventh man and never needed another. May I say this, people search for sin and drink sin in like they do alcohol, thinking it'll quench their soul and it leaves them dead and rotten inside. But Christ comes and He shows what we really need is Him. He's trying to do that for the rich young ruler, trying to show him, why did you call me good? Why does Jesus ask that question? Because He wants the man to define goodness. There's none good but one and that is God. Well, the man missed it, right over his head. So, well, then keep the commandments. I have. All right, I'll give you one final commandment. Go sell everything you have. Do something profitable with it. Give it to people that need it. Give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Take up the cross. Come follow me. You know what Jesus is saying? Exchange your idol for the living God. The man, it sunk in this time. Jesus said, you're going to have to make a decision. Me or money? And on this account, the man proved what he really was. He was an idolater. He loved earthly goods more than God. And the saying of Christ, why do you think it grieved him? Because he had great possessions. He said, boy, what he requires is just too much. And the Bible says, he being grieved went away. Sorrowful. Meaning he rejected Jesus Christ because what Jesus said did not line up with what he wanted. As far as I know, he could be the rich man in Luke 16 who in hell lift up his eyes being in torments, having rejected eternal life. I'm not saying he is the man in Luke 16. I said he could be. He could be the rich man, and I believe it's in Luke chapter 12, who said, Soul, you've done well. Tear down your barns and build the other and eat, drink, and be merry, basically. That night God required his soul of him because he was not rich toward God. This man had eternal life right in front of him. But because the word of God grieved him, he did not like the conclusion of God's word that you have to choose eternal or temporal. You've heard me say this. If you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it 20 times. God does not say that we're to love him more than money. He said him or money. He does not say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and you know, unless it's too difficult. <laughs> He does not say, set your affection on things above more than on things of the earth. Does he? He didn't say, love not the world more than you love the Father. He said, love not the world, neither things are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There comes a point, you've got to decide. 
what's worth more, eternal things or temporal things. I believe this, you'll not get saved until you're convinced that eternity is real and that your soul is more important than your body. Anybody else agree? You'll not get saved. And I'm not talking about becoming a disciple before you get saved. I'm talking about this. You have to believe God concerning eternity and say, you know what? How my eternity turns out is more important than how my life on earth turns out. Many people are in hell today because they wanted to live nicely on earth until they went to hell. But I'll say this. The Word of God will bring you to that point. This man was brought to the point where what Jesus said to him showed him, you are an idolater. And he was grieved and walked away. On contrast, you go over to John 21, and what was it that grieved Peter? Jesus asking him repeatedly what? Lovest thou me? Peter, lovest thou me? He said, lovest thou me more than these? There's some discussion over what are these? I I personally believe he's talking about the other disciples. Peter had boasted that if everybody else left Jesus, he never would. The question was, Peter, what you said back there, was it true? You told me that all men would forsake me, but not you. Did you love me more than them? Once again, you ain't showing Peter was? Peter was a liar. Can I, can I get some help this morning? When Peter lied and said he didn't even know Jesus, was he already a believer or not? Is it possible for saved people to sin? When Peter cussed and swore, was he already a disciple? Not just a believer. This man had forsaken his fishing boat to follow Christ. Yet he cussed and he swore. And the man lied. Said, I, I don't know who he is. Was that true, by the way? Did he not know who Jesus was? He lied. Lying, last time I checked, is an abomination to God. So when Jesus says to Peter, Lovest thou me more than these? One question. Woo! You know what it says about Peter? Number one, you've lied to yourself. Number two, you lied to me. Many a person right there would say, if you're going to single me out and call me a liar, I'm done. Peter doesn't say, well, I, I, I. He says, Lord, thou knowest all things. He says, Lord, obviously I don't, but you do. Jesus says, lovest thou me. That's agape, meaning unconditional, no strings attached. Unfettered, do you love me? Peter answered with phileo. Lord, I love you like a brother. You know it. There's a lot stated there. Two different kinds of love being discussed. Jesus is basically saying, do you love me like I love you, and do you love me more than they love me? How many of you know at times you are a great hero of the faith in your own mind? One thing will break that down. Spending time with God. His word will reveal... We're not perhaps what we think we are. Yes, it does. And what it does, it kills pride. The Word of God brings us to reality. So Jesus asked him once, Lovest thou me? Peter doesn't say like the rich young ruler, Well, I've done X, Y, and Z, Lord. Let me show you how much I've loved you. By the way, if you went back to where we're at in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says how hard it is for rich men to enter into the kingdom. And you know what Peter says? Lord, we've left all. What is there for us? That's Mark chapter 10. This time Jesus says to Peter, Lovest thou me? He doesn't say, Well, Lord, you know I left my fishing boat, and you know I left my dad, and you know... No, he just said, You know everything. You know, Lord. I can't talk about me, but I can talk about you. Thou knowest all things. I I love you. He says, Then feed my lambs. But Peter thought, Man, I'm glad that's over with. Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, Lovest thou me? Second time, I would think, man, didn't he make his point already? Lovest thou me? Lord, thou knowest all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Lambs become sheep when they get fed. Feed my sheep. But it's the third time. Three denials, three questions. Same question three times. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? The Bible says, uh, if you go back over here to John 21, let's read it. So don't butcher it up and we'll conclude in just a moment. John 21. The Bible says in verse 17, He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. 
How many ever, you know, I love to study the Apostle Peter, but how many ever follow the relationship Jesus and Peter has, and it seems like Jesus was constantly on to Peter? Does it seem that way to anybody else? I mean, he's constantly getting in trouble with the Lord, but not after this. Not after this. And I know I've preached on Peter many times to you, but there's such a tremendous truth here. We must get a hold of it. Peter would be the man who would preach on Pentecost and 3,000 would get saved and 5,000 would get saved. And we as preachers might say, man, what can I study about Peter that God might use me like that? It's real simple. Don't get offended at what he has to say. It's what John 15 is all about, to abide in him. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will. Now, I'll conclude here in just a moment. I find revelation as Jesus is speaking to the young ruler. He reveals he is an idolater. As he speaks to Peter, he reveals he's a liar and that he doesn't love Jesus like Jesus loves him. Jesus stood true to Peter when Peter denied him. You're going to live for Christ very long. There's going to come a point where you say, Lord, this is an uneven relationship. I cannot give back to you what you gave me. If you've not gotten there yet, may today be the day you do that there's no way you and I can even walk in the shadow of Jesus Christ when it comes to goodness. But we can follow Him and obey Him. And Peter got to the point where when Jesus said, Lovest thou me? And Peter had to know all that that entailed. If Peter might have said, Why are you asked? Never mind, I know why you might ask. I told you I'd never deny you and I did. You told me that I would, and I called you a liar by saying you were wrong. God ever warned you of something you thought, never me. I never would do that. Oh, be careful. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So there's revelation. In the revelation, there's reproof. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. I believe this. The life lived correctly is not a life free of reproof. The life lived correctly is the life lived responding correctly to reproof. We'll never get to the place where we don't need to be told we're wrong or we need to change something or make a decision uh, and change the way we're living. What will make the difference is how we respond to that reproof. There would come a time later when the Apostle Paul, this new zealous Christian who had been persecuting the church, would look Peter right in the face and say, you're being hypocritical, brother. Right? Read Galatians. Peter was dissimulating, meaning he was acting like he could not fellowship with the Gentile brethren. And Paul looked him in the face and said, you're wrong. That same man by Peter would later be commended as an apostle, a servant of God. And you need to listen to the scriptures that God's giving by him. Meaning, Peter learned how to take reproof. How to, I don't know about you. I don't want anybody saying, you don't love the Lord like you should. I mean, you want to charge me with anything, I, please don't tell me I don't love the Lord like I should, but I promise you, if you're going to be a Christian at some point in time, He's going to say, you're not loving me. We have to accept that. I don't want somebody to look at me and say, you're being, you got a double standard, brother. Brian, it would grieve me deeply if you had to come to me and say, Nevin, I've been around here this week, and brother, you're not practicing what you preach. As a pastor, what do you want more in your ministry than integrity? Can you think of anything you want more than that? So if someone said to you, and you knew it was true. You're being duplicitous. Oh, that's what Paul told Peter. The junior told the senior. Peter had been saved a lot longer than Paul had. Peter had been through the crucifixion and the resurrection while Paul is growing up and learning how to persecute Christians. And Paul, the junior, would tell Peter, the senior, you're being a hypocrite. A great peace have they which love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. And here's blessed Peter getting reproof and then with the reproof always comes a responsibility. The Lord Jesus reveals to the young ruler, you're an idolater. That's a reproof. And there's a responsibility to respond to that. What should idolaters do when God's word shows us that's what we are? We should say, oh, woe is me. I'm undone. That's what Isaiah said. But you know what the ruler did? Instead of accepting God's assessment of him, he left, walked away. Peter, on the other hand, when reproved for not loving the Lord like he should, sat there and received it. And when told to follow, guess what he did? He followed. The response is what renders the result. You see, God's going to speak. And God's going to tell us the truth. He tells us the truth through creation. He tells us the truth in our conscience. And above all, he tells us the truth in the Bible. 
And how things turn out between he and I will, deter- will be determined by how I respond to him. Unless there's something that we don't know. From the Bible, as far as we know, there's a rich young ruler today spending eternity in hell. Because he didn't have the opportunity to get saved. God loved him. Well, that'll blow a Calvinist mind, now won't it? God loved him even though he wasn't saved. God loved him even though he was rejecting God's word. God loved him even though he loved money more than he loved God. Yet in the person of Christ, the Bible says Jesus looking on him loved him. Knowing he was an idolater. And that man turned and walked away from the love of God because what Jesus said offended him. Peter, on the other hand, had already learned to believe on Christ. And when the reproof of him was, you have failed, Peter, but I still have a job for you. And if you love me, obey me. You know what Peter did? He responded very differently than Rich Young. Did the, did the word of God grieve Peter? It grieved him. But because he knew who it came from. He had said to Jesus some time past, Jesus had said when the crowds left him, will ye also go away? And Peter said, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Again, Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. If someone said to me today, having pastored the point I'd have and been in the ministry to this point, somebody said, could you see a pattern in the lives of people that flourish spiritually? This was touched on in Sunday school already. Is it their upbringing? No. <laughs> I've known some rough ones. I got an Uncle Mike today serving God today, and friend, he was brought up being a thief and told to be a thief by his parents. He grew up being a thief and a drunkard and on drugs and beating his wife. Not today. I've known other people raised up in Christian homes, like some sitting here, and they are serving God. So no, it's not upbringing. The way all people generally become what they're brought up as, not when God gets involved. No, this is not upbringing. Oh, it's whether you're from the Bible Belt. No, it's not that. It's about how old you were when you first heard the gospel. No, it's not about that. It's about whether you have a perfect pastor. I pray not. Not about that. What is the common denominator between people who wash out and either don't get saved or don't serve God? What is the common denominator? And it's this right here. They take God's word no matter how it makes them feel because they know it's true. That's the common denominator. I want His word because it's His. And if it grieves me, I'll take it. And if it delights me, I'll take it. That's the common denominator. If we want our lives to count for Jesus, we're going to have to abide in His word and let it abide in us.